Today's episode of the Bowery Boys is brought to you by Burrows of the Dead. Burrows of the Dead specializes in strange, dark, and unusual walking tours of New York City. Discover the macabre side of New Amsterdam on their Forgotten Dark Histories of Lower Manhattan tour. Indulge in a classic spooky ghost tour. Or take one of their brand new tours devoted to the history of magic, mysticism, and spiritualism in NoHo and the Lower East Side. Use offer code BOWERY18 to save 10% on your next Burrows of the Dead tour. Find tickets at burrowsofthedead.com. This episode is also brought to you by the Bowery Boys Live at Joe's Pub. The Bowery Boys Ghost Stories of Old New York Halloween Spooktacular are two shows on October 31st. Did on- you say spooktacular? Oh, it's a spooktacular, all right, but they're both sold out. We did want to announce, however, that we have a third show lined up on Sunday, October 28th. And get this, Tom, it's a brunch show, noon on Sunday. They'll be serving eggs Benedict. <laughs> <laughs> with haunted hollandaise sauce. <laughs> Washing down with a boolini. <laughs> And those are just the puns off the top of our head. Tickets for that show are going fast, so get them now by going to publictheater.org. That's Sunday, October 28th at noon. See you with the Bulini. The Bowery Boys episode 273, Peter Stuyvesant and the Fall of New Amsterdam. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. With part two of our look at life in New Amsterdam, that Dutch settlement which arrived on Manhattan Island in the 1620s, Now, in our last episode, we discussed the founding of New Netherland and New Amsterdam by the Dutch West India Company, and we also talked quite a bit uh, about the rather chaotic first few decades of its leadership. An alternative title for that last episode, Tom, could have been New Amsterdam BP, New Amsterdam Before Peter. Ah. That would be the subject of this week's show, Peter Stuyvesant. Or New Amsterdam HM, that is New Amsterdam Hot Mess. (laughs) But this show is going to focus on the man who straightened things up in more ways than one. Here in the settlement of New Amsterdam, we are proud to reintroduce the man himself, Peter Stuyvesant, warts and all. Yeah, Peter Stuyvesant, who would help stabilize and lead the colony during the 17 years that he served as its director general. He was, in fact, a complicated guy. He was devoutly religious, although he was also an autocratic company man, you know, who was an effective leader and did successfully whip the place into shape. He took this disheveled settlement, huddled around a ramshackle fort, and turned it into a functioning city of thousands. And his influence would extend to lands around New Amsterdam. He would build it into a thriving place, finally restoring order, only to see it, in the end, slip from his grasp. So join us as we explore the complicated legacy of Peter Stuyvesant and the fall of New Amsterdam. 
So Tom, before we get into the weeds of Peter Stuyvesant's interesting story, could you just give us a little recap of what we spoke about in the last episode? So um, in four quick bullet points, Mm -hmm. because we have a lot to cover in this show. The first permanent settlers uh, from Holland arrived here in New Amsterdam in May of 1624. They went about establishing a presence in all of this new Netherland territory. They formed settlements up in today's Connecticut, uh, up near today's Albany, south along the Delaware River, and here, although it was out on Governor's Island that they first settled down, uh, before moving over to the tip of Manhattan in their largest settlement, New Amsterdam. In 1625. Yes, and remember that these settlers were coming over on behalf of a company, the Dutch West India Company. New Netherland and New Amsterdam were profit-making colonies for this company. The primary focus of these settlements was trade with the Native Americans who lived here and to acquire specifically beaver pelts that were then sent back to the Netherlands and they were made into fine clothing that was all the rage at the time. And there were a few leaders that we spoke about, a whole litany of... uh bedraggled, somewhat controversial figures. Right. They included Willem Verhoest, who was replaced by Peter Minuit, who famously signed the document with the Lenny Lenape tribe, in which he, quote, purchased the island of Manhattan for the value of 60 guilders. Now, Minuit would be replaced by Wouter van Twiller, a man with lots of great Vs, <laughs> um, who who went on to purchase much more land. Keeping much of it for himself. Exactly. But would see the settlement really fall into disrepair. And so he would be replaced by the autocratic Willem Kieft in 1638, who was, as we pointed out in the last show, the most notorious of them all. Because it was Kieft who, among other things, Well, he did a bunch of bad things, but he managed to really destroy the relationships that the colony had with the Native American tribes around them, which led to prolonged war, referred to as Keefe's War, which, among other terrible consequences, caused a collapse in the trading with the tribes, which turned out to be very bad for business for the Dutch West India Company. This led New Amsterdamers, uh, prominent ones, to complain back to the leadership of the Dutch West India Company. So Kieft was fired by the management in 1647. So then he is being removed from office and being replaced with somebody who they believe is far more confident and far more skilled in running the show here. And that would be the man named Petrus Stuyvesant. Well, he was actually born Peter. He wasn't oh. born Petrus, which we'll get to in a okay. second. But Peter was born in 1610 in the rural northern part of the Netherlands called Friesland. Now, his father was a strict Calvinist uh, reformed minister and probably somewhat disappointed that Peter did not follow his lead into the ministry but instead went off and got himself a liberal arts education. He studied philosophy at, uh, at university, 
and in fact felt like such a fancy pants that he started going by the Latin version of his name, Petrus, (laughs) just to kind of show off to everybody that he had schooling. Oh, didn't we all kind of change our names like in high school and college to make ourselves look more important? Do you remember how insufferable (laughs) I was after freshman year when like I had I discovered velvet blazers and spoke (laughs) with a sort of like vaguely continental accent (laughs) we're all insufferable okay so i'm imagining that peter did something very similar 400 years ago but then did he get a job afterwards because we know how those liberal arts educations can be yeah well i mean he did what most people did at the time who had studied philosophy he started temping no that's a joke. He was he was actually forced out of uh, school after a couple of years. And so he set off for Amsterdam in 1630. And there he found work at the Dutch West India Company, uh, who sent him off to help manage some of their colonies off in the West Indies. And it was there that he worked, you know, on islands near Brazil for several years and then on the island of Curaçao in the Caribbean. Uh, where he became the acting governor in 1642. So he was 32 years old. Yeah, I mean, he was a yeah. pretty young guy for for a prominent position like I that. I think we imagined him being kind of much older, but uh, in fact, he was uh, in the prime of his life here. And in fact, he was leading military skirmishes in the in the region. Yes, yeah, he led a military, like a, a massive military attack on the Spanish island of St. Martin in 1644. And he was commanding a force of like a thousand soldiers, you know, who were attacking it. Remember at this time that European powers were battling each other um, over claims to all of these different islands and countries and territories. But during this attack on Curacao, his right leg was crushed by a cannonball, which resulted in its amputation just under his right knee. Uh, But he did continue that siege uh, for a month despite that injury, but was finally defeated and headed back to Amsterdam to heal. And it was there that he had a wooden peg installed where he once had his right leg. And he spent that year recovering at his sister's place, being attended to by his sister's sister-in-law. Got that? So his sister's husband's Mm -hmm. sister. Yeah. A woman named Judith Bayard, whom he would marry the very next year in 1645. Bayard, another prominent name here of old New York. That's right. But then how did he make it over here to New Amsterdam? He seems kind of an unlikely choice for this position. Well, I mean, he was recovering, you know, and healing back in Amsterdam, but he was being treated like a hero for his management, uh, his military skills, and for the way that he soldiered on despite his injury, his extremely painful injury. So at this time, remember that back in New Amsterdam, Kieft was needing to be replaced. So the company was looking around for some kind of leader who they knew that they could trust uh, somebody up for the job, willing to make excruciating sacrifices. And Stuyvesant, meanwhile, was eager to get back to work. Um, so you could say, he, you know, he was he was quickly pegged as the perfect candidate. He and Judith would arrive in New Amsterdam in August of 1647. And arrived here to great acclaim, of course. People were initially very happy to see him. But where would you even begin? Like, if you stepped off the boat, if you're a Peter and you're looking around, and the town is, you know, pretty much a big trash dump. 
<laughs> Let's to be it's honest. A mess. And depopulated too. Yeah, not very many people. Only about five hundred at this point living in New Amsterdam. He started by famously announcing to the assembled residents of New Amsterdam in a rather stern manner, quote, I shall govern you as a father his children for the advantage of the chartered West India Company and these burghers and this land. And Keeft is actually not gone yet. They didn't just like, security didn't show him the door. He was actually, st- there was no two weeks notice. No, he, he was wasn't like wandering around in the street with a banker's box. <laughs> right. He was, he was still on the scene. Yeah, because there was no place for him to go. You know, I mean, the ships, there, there weren't that many ships going back and forth. And mm-hmm. he had to wait for Peter to get there. But Peter comes and takes over. Kieft, meanwhile, you'll remember, has been accused of complete mismanagement by his advisory council that he had, including a Reverend Bogardis and others. They were the ones who had written to the Dutch West India Company to mm-hmm. get him fired in the first place. What I found interesting was that Peter didn't shower this group in praises. He didn't say, like, you guys were really looking out for the best interest of the colony, you council, and I'm going to reward you with, like, you know, little stars that I'm going to pin on your He didn't butter them up. He was not actually pleased. He, in fact, he had them investigated for insurrection because they had gone, after all, behind their leader's back. No matter how bad he was, they had gone behind the company director's back and undermined him and reported on him to the to the company back in Amsterdam, even if he was awful. So there's no, you couldn't have done the right thing in this situation, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know. I guess, what do you do when, you know, leadership's that bad? Resign? But what Peter was afraid of was that if these people had already plotted against their former leader, they could also plot against him. And in fact, he had heard that there, sure, were, yeah. there were people there who were spreading word, like bad rumors about Stuyvesant. So he was already feeling like there were those who were trying to undermine his authority. So long story short, he ends up sending the whole group of them, Kieft and those who had accused him, back to Amsterdam to report to the Dutch West India Company. Wiping the slate clean. Yes. He put them all aboard the ship, the Princess Amelia, which must have been a really awkward three-month trip. (laughs) I mean, they just kept bumping into each other, you know, like in the mess hall. And the council was going back with all of their records, you know, that they had been keeping to prove their point. But tragically, as the ship approached Wales on on its way back home, it sank. And almost all of them drowned. So in a way, Stuyvesant sentenced them to death, unknowingly. But I do think that this says something about Stuyvesant's um, governing technique. You know, Kieft had been autocratic, but really like clumsy and just ineffective. Stuyvesant was coming in with some of these same autocratic tendencies, but he was a much better manager and he was a much better ruler in that respect. Uh, To quote a Peter Stuyvesant biography that was written in 1893 by Bayard Tuckerman, quote, if there was one opinion unalterably fixed in the mind of Stuyvesant, it was that to the powers that be is due a blind obedience. Right or wrong, there should be no resistance to a constituted authority. Although political liberty was the birthright of the Dutch, their colonies, generally military in character, had to be arbitrarily governed. Stuyvesant was accustomed to a rigid discipline, and he knew how to govern only as a master. 
In other words, don't cross him. So Stuyvesant is there. He's reasserted himself as the authority. And he looks around and sees loads of projects that just have to be tackled, right? The fort that we talked about, Fort Amsterdam, was a total disaster. The settlement was in disarray. Residents were behaving immorally. They were being lewd. Animals, speaking of lewd, were wandering around pigs in the streets, Uh doing whatever they wanted to do, wherever they wanted to do it. And in fact, residents were tossing whatever filth they wanted wherever they wanted as well. It was really a nasty place. Here in New Amsterdam, before Stuyvesant, people were essentially living on a prayer. They were either just trying to survive, they were trading, gathering fur skins um, Mm -hmm. for profit, and then, of course, while not doing that, a lot of them were most of the time drinking beer. Right. So that was this was the backdrop of the the livelihood of New Amsterdam. So there was no sense of order. And the town itself was even like even the streets kind of represented, reflected all of this madness. They were haphazardly designed and laid out. People had kind of constructed dwellings wherever they wanted to. Yeah, just based on the whims of individual property owners. It was like, you know, no one was in charge. But Stuyvesant came in here and saw that he could actually, with this authority, he could remake the city. So, as a result, he authorized a series of ordinances to clear animals from the street to a lot areas specifically for garbage, like, well, to A, pick up the garbage, and then B, <laughs> to put it in a designated place. Um, improper privies, outhouses were banned. Could you imagine anyone caring about th- things like that back in the 1630s in our last show? I mean, this is like good old-fashioned like basic civic regulation. Yeah, Van Twiller was not concerned <laughs> about privies, Greg. No. No, he did. So he basically arrives and starts passing these laws, right? He forced merchants and tavern owners to come to him for permits that had never been necessary before. And also forced the the taverns to stop serving and to close down at 9 p.m. He also looked around and saw the need for big construction projects, which would require money, which he would raise by imposing taxes on the residents. I'll get into uh, some of those projects a Mm -hmm. little bit later, but uh, let's just say overall when you impose taxes or even raise taxes that are already there, that doesn't tend to make you very popular with the residents. Right, especially if if there isn't some sort of representation. Um, So he was under a lot of pressure to make changes to the governmental structure of New Amsterdam uh, to make it more than simply a company town. One of the main proponents of making these changes uh, was a man named Adrian Vanderdonk. And Vanderdonk's story is awesome. It's a great story because he was the first lawyer to practice in New Amsterdam. He had actually been prominent during Kieft's time because he had helped Kieft negotiate a peace settlement that ended the, the conflicts with the Native Americans. As a reward for that, Kieft had actually granted Vanderdonk a huge tract of land uh, north of Manhattan along the Hudson. And Vanderdonk forested that land. He set up sawmills uh, from which we get today's sawmill parkway. Mm-hmm. And he, Vanderdonk, was so prominent that he was referred to as a squire. In Dutch, the word is jonkier, uh, which has resulted, of course, over the years in the word 
Yonkers. So the city of Yonkers, mm-hmm. which is not a part of New York City, no. is derived from the original state of Adrian Vanderdonk. And also much of today's Bronx. So even though Stuyvesant is this very autocratic character, he was eventually pressured by the leading residents to transform the government of New Amsterdam and how, it was, how, this, how this place was governed. That's right. And he initially adopted a form of government that was popular back in Holland, in which the residents choose 18 potential leaders. They choose 18, and then the leader, Stuyvesant, gets to select nine of those people to serve as a kind of city council. And Vanderdonk was one of those men. I think that's how they vote for people on The Voice. <laughs> um, so, but, this, but no, but this is a, a positive development. It sounds like something, like we're nearing something vaguely democratic here. And it, it would have been very positive had Stuyvesant actually taken their advice or even respected them at all. But anytime they disagreed with him, he actually threatened them, like with bodily harm. So, finally, the council complained in 1649 back to, you know, the authorities in the Netherlands um, issued a statement of grievances, which they called their remonstrance. And a small group of three of these men, including Adrian Vanderdonk, traveled back to Amsterdam to make and plead their case for a more uh, representative municipal government for New Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. He would need to stay because they were distracted with some wars and other things. He had to stay in Amsterdam for a few years in order to make this case. But finally, in 1652, the Dutch government forced the Dutch West India Company to set up a municipal government uh, that actually had a municipal charter in New Amsterdam uh, that would go into effect the following year in 1653. So they were made official, so to speak, by this... uh by this gesture from Vanderdonk and the others. They were made, right, exactly. This passed from being a company outpost for the Dutch West India Company to the municipality of New Amsterdam, which was recognized as an official Dutch city in 1653. So 365 years ago, Lower Manhattan and the surrounding, some of the surrounding region was officially a Dutch city. Yes, and Stuyvesant nearly lost his job over the whole thing, and he was not very pleased uh, that he had to accept a kind of balance of powers, but he did, begrudgingly. So that is, I think, a good overview of the sort of early years of Peter Stuyvesant. You've gotten us here into the 1650s. You know, I wanted to add also that a really big thing that he did early on. So we talked about the Machtfeld, the market field mm-hmm. area where, where people could come and sell their wares. Again, if you could imagine how disorganized the whole town was. Now, just imagine how disorganized that market was. So Stuyvesant brought a lot more order. It was a much more orderly market that was developed along the East River and would eventually meet every Saturday. And because it was so orderly, what this actually did is that many farmers from around the region, from far and wide, sometimes even from English colonies, would come down and sell their wares here. They would take gifts, they would take carts, whatever. They would get to town to sell these things that would become known very far and wide. Um, so already, like, Lower Manhattan is seen as this place of great commerce because of this kind of, like, cleanup effort. Which is a huge difference from a decade before when it was a company town <laughs> yeah. and all the trading was restricted to trading for the good of the company. 
Yeah, this was open by kind of by instilling order. It became a lot more open and drew a lot of money into this new city. But you mentioned that it drew farmers from far and wide. Yes. um, Including some English speaking Mm -hmm, farmers, mm -hmm. um, but also Dutch farmers. So so there were also Dutch settlements in the surrounding areas. Right. There had been in the years following Keefe's removal, peace restored more or less to the land around here. And there were more Dutch settlers arriving throughout the years as the, as word went back that this was a more organized place. So the Dutch are kind of filling out the place finally. And they weren't just attracting Dutch people to these settlements. No, I mean, in particular, out in Long Island, even in the 1640s, even in the final years of Kieft, for instance, in 1645, interestingly, all of this is after the, the truce of the Keefe's War, which has allowed these developments to happen. 1645, a patent was granted to an English religious refugee and her followers. Her followers. Yes, the Lady Deborah Moody had a very significant settlement in Long Island that would be called Gravesend. The following year, in 1646, another one I believe that will ring off everyone's ear, Broeckelen, here on the western coast of Long Island, which would, of course, be the seed of Brooklyn. After that, 1647, New Amsfurt, the Flatlands, and then later, under Stuyvesant, many more would come to pass. In 1657, New Utrecht, 1661, Boswick, or Bushwick. Then if we go even further north under Stuyvesant's reign, you've got Rustdorp, which would become Jamaica, Newtown, which would later be Maspeth. And then in 1652, these communities actually joined a very, very old Dutch community that had formed here in the 1640s named Vlissingen, or as we would call Flushing. And then, of course, there's also Staten Island. Sure. Don't forget about <laughs> Staten Island, Greg. Uh, but what else is happening? There were there were other settlements happening on Manhattan as well. Yeah, there's actually a, a thriving, very interesting example in a village in northern Manhattan named for the Dutch city of Harlem called New Harlem. Now, this had been an early settlement in the 1640s that was abandoned because of Keefe's War. Stuyvesant, knowing that the island of Manhattan would need some kind of a northern defense, in 1658 made an arrangement with new settlers that they could get parcels of land and if they would set up a garrison up here in northern Manhattan. And thus was born New Harlem. It would remain an independent enclave well into the English period. And the roots, of course, of today's modern neighborhood of Harlem begin here during the Stuyvesant period. So those were Dutch farms. Right, Dutch farms. Up in northern Manhattan. But now, of course, Tom, there is no Dutch farm that is as famous as Peter Stuyvesant's own farm. Ah, yes. (laughs) Of course, Stuyvesant's farm, which really occupied most of today's East Village, or from what I remember, from about (laughs) 5th Street today up to about 20th and everything east of the Bowery. Uh Uh-huh. The Bowery being, you know, the the today's road being named for the farm or farms that were in this area. So he had this giant parcel of land up here, which, by the way, does include today's 
Stuyvesant Town. Uh huh. But did he actually live there, or did he just retire to that farm? Um, not at first. Actually, originally he lived in Fort Amsterdam. Um, when he first got there. Right. And then later on, he would have a house and gardens built right next to the fort. And I'm going to take you on a tour of that. Oh, I can't wait. Its name was Whitehall. Got it. In 1651, he decided that he, you know, he wanted to start making some money too. So he purchased the farm Bowery Number no. 1 or the Great Bowery, which was this huge parcel of land that was reserved, actually, for directors general. But he bought this farm. Yeah, he bought it outright. From bought the, the farm. Right, from the, <laughs> from the Dutch West India Company, and would eventually add, add to it until it was almost 120 acres. Just to, like, imagine it in today's modern city, so Stuyvesant's farm is east of the Bowery. Mm-hmm. West of the Bowery is that old Wouter van Twiller farm that was originally the village of Nordwick. Well, later, another Dutch settler would come to this area and rename it as Greenwich Village. Wait, but Greenwich is not named for the town of Greenwich, the city of Greenwich in England? No, it traces to a Dutch word, Grenvik. So that would be here and south of here. In addition, a little bit south of here and south of of Stuyvesant's farm would be a small community of free African landowners who would develop and stake their claim here during Keefe's period, but would grow and develop them into the Stuyvesant era. Men and women with names that have been passed down to us today, like Paulo Dangola, Gracia Dangola, Simon Congo. So these were freed men and women who lived in this area today known as the Land of the Blacks. And Stuyvesant, as well as some of his other wealthy neighbors, would buy up some of these freed lots, Mm -hmm. these farms that were owned by freed blacks. I mean, no surprise, by the way, that these these farms and these these settlements, you know, they were placed outside the main city border and were seen as sort of a defense buffer, you know, just in case anything bad happened. A buffer from what exactly? Because at this point, there had been a truce signed with the Native Americans. Were they really at any real danger here? Oh, they were definitely in danger, especially during the 1650s. The shifting socio-political international scene here would be reflected down on their relationships with other colonies. Of course, uh, their relationship with the Native American tribes of the region were also very fragile. There's no greater illustration of the danger than the so-called Peach Wars, which were waged between the Iroquois-speaking tribe Susquehannock and the Dutch in September of 1655. In fact, many of these outlying farms in Staten Island and in Harlem were attacked, and the residents temporarily retreated to Fort Amsterdam. But the fort uh, that was defending New Amsterdam was at the southern tip. Yeah. So what was really defending New Amsterdam on its northern border? Was there a border? Well, just a couple years earlier, fortunately for the residents of New Amsterdam, there had been another major planning project hatched by Peter Stuyvesant, the construction of a northern defense wall, or as he described it, quote, a high stockade and small breastwork. Now, both the wall and the improvements to the fort were paid for by the, you know, the 43 richest residents of New York. Although it was a loan, right? And they were paid back for loaning the oh, money. Oh, sure, to, sure, sure. Th- mm-hmm. Right. This was not just because they were, you know, 
upright citizens. They, they were making money on this. Well, they needed to get and then they needed to get it done immediately once they decided. It was a communal wall made of earth, rock, and timber, and it would officially define the northern border of New Amsterdam. Of course, today it is none other than the street that we call Wall Street where this original wall once sat. These residents lent the money to have this wall constructed, but they were not physically building the wall themselves. No. Um, Great sections of the wall, and possibly even all of the wall and all of its maintenance, um, all they were it was built by enslaved labor. The population of enslaved people in New Amsterdam greatly increased during Peter Stuyvesant's reign. The Dutch relationship with the slave trade heightened in the 1650s when, I mean, again, not to get into the, like the, the geopolitical winds here, but they lost Brazil to the Portuguese in 1654. Which was a major setback for them commercially, which then set the company, it forced them to look around for new areas of revenue. Exactly, which is why they resituated their plans. And then all of a sudden, New Netherland, which had been kind of a remote, like an outpost, suddenly became a potential market. Again, because Stuyvesant had done such a, you know, a good job further developing the place. The first slave ship sailed into the harbor in 1655, and people were first sold at a slave market in New Amsterdam in 1658. So the Dutch are responsible for bringing slavery into this region officially, only to be like really fully entrenched here when the English would come along in the following decade. But during this period, during our story, slaves are living and working in the homes of New Amsterdam residents, but they're also being kept by the company itself and working for the company. So many of the people, many of the enslaved people who constructed the wall were actually those being kept by the Dutch West India Company. But isn't that kind of at odds with his morality? Where was the morality <laughs> right. of Peter Stuyvesant? Well, yeah, it, well, it seems to be in conflict with this his method of governing the city of New Amsterdam, right? This strict moralist way. But we should just keep in mind that many moral decisions today that we would consider completely disgraceful were a practical matter of life back then. For instance, as another way to make money, Stuyvesant dispatched two ships on a privateering expedition, scouring the Atlantic looking for Spanish ships to plunder. So piracy was now an official policy of New Amsterdam. And then, as you mentioned, of course, his... He really zeroed in on what he thought was a major factor of chaos in New Amsterdam, which was liquor, with these edicts that punished bar fights and drinking on Sunday and even selling liquor to Native Americans. Well, and that sounds more to me like the son of a minister. Exactly, because, of course, he was still a deep adherent to the Dutch Reformed Church. But keep in mind that before Stuyvesant, the Dutch West India Company didn't really care about the settlers' religions all that much. They just wanted the work to get done. They needed people. <laughs> yes, it was a company town. They didn't want to use religion to hinder people who wanted to work for them. As a result, the aforementioned Gravesend and the previously doomed settlement of Anne Hutchinson up in the area of today's Bronx were, those were religious settlements, but you know this, these were before Stuyvesant. And so they were kind of allowed to thrive. But, but when Peter Stuyvesant arrived, he actually banned 
the practice of other beliefs. He, uh, for instance, found out about secret services for Lutherans out in Newtown, which would become Maspeth, and had the worshipers arrested. Unfortunately for Stuyvesant, when news of this got back to the Dutch West India Company, of several of whom were actual Lutherans, well, they <laughs> sent back a note to Stuyvesant and told him to cut it out. Because he was effectively putting his religion before the concerns, the commercial concerns of yeah. the company. He was virulently anti-Jewish, His pretty much his whole tenure here at New Amsterdam. He tried again and again to throw Jewish worshipers out of the city. Honestly, at this point is where you find some of the nastiest language that comes from Peter Stuyvesant. But again, he was reprimanded by the company who did not have any issue with people who were Jewish. And saw his lack of religious tolerance as bad for business. Oh, yeah. And last but not least, let's before we move on, I should mention that he also hated the Quakers, who had many settled in Long Island. In particular, that one settlement named Vlissingen, mm-hmm. which would, Flushing. of course, be Flushing. Yeah. So they were especially hated by Stuyvesant. But they united in opposition with a document that was signed on December 27th, 1657, the Flushing Remonstrance, basically pushing back against Stuyvesant and really for the first time, like a document that instills a certain kind of freedom of religion in this land that would soon become the United States. But now pulling back, getting back into our story here. Stuyvesant has constructed this wall, he's passed all these orders and edicts, and people are behaving somewhat better. Mm-hmm. Business is recovering, more people are settling here yes. in this new town, and settling in outlying settlements. But Stuyvesant himself hasn't actually restored law and order, right? Well, he, does, well, he, just, he can't do it himself. Right, I mean, <laughs> he, he can be he could, mean, yes. he can curse at people. <laughs> I mean, he can crack a whip, but who's actually enforcing the laws? Yeah, so a little more than a decade after Peter Stuyvesant arrives on the scene, they finally organize what we would call today a police force. What they called back then in 1658, the Rattle Watch. These were men who were patrolling the street named for this rattle that they kept on the side of them, you know, to like kinda alert like a, people. Like a New, a New Year's Eve noisemaker, right? I that you kind of like clack I, around in your hand. I want to believe that it sounded better than those things, but maybe it didn't. I don't know. Um, they wandered New Amsterdam and even the environs in front of the wall throughout the night, looking out not only for potential attacks by local tribes, they were also looking out for possible fires because, of course, many of the buildings were still wooden by this point. They did try and enforce the law. They were looking for drunks. That was a very defined task. One of their objectives was looking for unruly drunkards. Oh, it seems like a rattle would actually just kind of <laughs> rattle them more. I'd be Can rattled, you? I know, if I had a few drinks and saw them coming down the street. I mean, they themselves had to exhibit high degrees of sobriety. That was also part of their mission statement. In many ways, the rattle watch underscored how sophisticated New Amsterdam had become by the end of the 1650s. By the next decade, early 1660s, we had 1,500 people living in New Amsterdam and almost 10,000 throughout New Netherland. And then the incredible thing is only about a little over half were actually Dutch. So you had Germans and French and English and other countries 
living here amongst the Dutch. And then in New Amsterdam in particular, about one-fifth of the population was African, either enslaved or freed. So by 1660, New Amsterdam has really changed. It is a thriving municipality. We're going to take a walk through the streets of New Amsterdam in the 1660s after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Today's show is also brought to you by Bowery Boys Walking Tours. We are actually set to launch our very first walking tour, The Landmarks and Legends of Broadway, this Sunday, October 7th. Uh, there are still, I think, two or three spots available. These are small group walking tours. Uh, there's still a couple slots available there, but we have more walking tours in October and also in November that are currently available. We've developed this walk with our friend Jeff Dobbins, who's a tour guide and a writer, and he has decades of experience working in New York's theater industry. Jeff will be leading this tour uh, from one Broadway theater to the next as he tells the incredible story of Broadway's history. For more information and to sign up for this tour and to read more about the tours, head to Bowery Boys Walks 
com. That's BoweryBoysWalks.com. And those who support us on Patreon.com will receive 20% off these walks. So check your Patreon page for more information. We look forward to seeing you in the streets. And now, back to the show. So, Tom, in our last episode, I gave us a, a virtual walking tour of New Amsterdam as it might have looked in the 1630s. Yes. So, a lot of improvements have been made. We've just described them. No pigs. <laughs> so we're like now 25, even 30 years out from that city I described. Could you give us a walking tour of the, the New Amsterdam of the 1660s? Are you asking me to lead you on a walking tour of old <laughs> New Amsterdam? That I am. It would be my pleasure. And let's remember that when walking around New Amsterdam, really we're talking about the area of southern Manhattan, really from like today's Customs House or the Museum of the American Indian um, on Lower Broadway, that is the site of the former Fort Amsterdam, which is almost at the very tip of the island. The, the eastern edge, the eastern shoreline was today's Pearl Street. The northern frontier was Wall Street, as you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And the western, that is the western shore uh, facing the, the North River or today's Hudson, was really just like the block west of Broadway. So that's it. The rest of the island that is southeast and west of this today at the tip is landfill. And Greg, we're going to be meeting a diverse group of people as we walk around here. In contrast to, you know, the, the company town that the New Amsterdam was 10, 20 years ago, now in the 1660s, only about 75 men in New Amsterdam work for the Dutch West India Company. The rest were independent. Yeah, they were artisans and traders, merchants, you know, firemen, sailors, soldiers, uh, but they weren't working for the company. This was no longer really a company town. So let's begin at the fort, which has been refurbished. Yes. Uh, uh, and is a is a more impressive defense than it had been before. It had, right, finally under Stuyvesant been strengthened and improved. And behind us is the parade ground, because uh, we're starting our tour here. So the parade ground is today's Bowling Green. This area is kind of busy. Uh, there are a couple busy streets here. Although the Haraveg, which would be Broadway, mm -hmm. doesn't have much development yet because it's kind of, you know... It's more westerly, and, and really much of the development is happening on the east side yeah, of it's, New Amsterdam. Yeah, it's kind of out of the vague. But come with me. We're going to head over to the eastern, uh, the shoreline. Now, note as we walk along that we're passing here Brower Street, mm -hmm. or Brewer, named for the brewers on the street. It's a narrow, narrow little thing here. But by this point already in the 1660s, nobody really calls it Brewer Street anymore because in 1658, uh, the residents had petitioned the city and they were allowed to pave their streets, which was the first paved street in the settlement. So now everybody just refers to it as Stone Street. Oh, because when you say paved, like cobblestone Right, these are po right. paved with cobblestones. So that is Stone Street. And, and look at the nice houses. They're very tidy. Mm -hmm. Note that they, they, look, they look quite nice. In fact, these are reminiscent of houses that you might find back in the Netherlands. They're looking very Dutch right here with their gabled roofs and their tidy little gardens. We could stop here at the corner of Stone Street at the tavern called the Wooden Horse, mm -hmm. but it often gets rather rowdy. 
And it is only, you know, three in the afternoon. So we're going <laughs> to... That didn't stop him back then, Tom. <laughs> but it'll Nor stop does us. it stop us. <laughs> no, no. But no, we're going to keep on moving and heading east. And we will arrive here at Stuyvesant's lovely three-story home. Well, two stories and a nice third floor with a gabled roof. It's a Dutch townhouse um, that the locals called the Great House but over time would be called the White Hall because of the white stones that are covering the home. It's, it's lovely. It's, it's surrounded by a fence and beautiful gardens around it right here. White Hall would lend its name then to the street we now call White Hall Street. At the time, though, remember everything east of Pearl Street was water. So Stuyvesant's home here was kind of on a, a bit of land that jutted out into the water. Today... The site of his home is one State Street, uh, and it's occupied by a rather large, glassy, modern office tower very near the entrance to uh, the Staten Island Ferry. Mm -hmm. But let's keep walking up the eastern shoreline here, up Pearl Street. Yes, and look at Pearl Street. Look at how it hooks and kind of turns as you walk along it northward. One of the first things that we notice here is on our right, it's the city's first municipal pier that was constructed under Stuyvesant. It juts right off of Pearl Street into the water. And in fact, the two-block stretch here along Pearl Street facing the pier uh, is crammed with shops and taverns and homes. That's called the Strand. So we're walking along the Strand. Wow. And looking out at that pier, you'll notice that it's actually lined with boats and vessels that are moored to it. Ships coming into the harbor would be required to pay duties if they had things that were coming and going off the ships. Right. Um, but the key here is that they were moored here because when this would be filled in with landfill, this street would be called Moore Streets. It's a small little street, but it oh, exists yeah, right okay. there. Well, give me more. <laughs> well, let's keep heading up Pearl Street. Before we get to Broad Street, you come across the, the site of one of the first churches outside of the fort, because the fort had a church, but mm -hmm. this one was located outside. It was established during Keith's time by the Reverend Bogardus, um, who you know was lost at sea, mm -hmm. uh, going back to defend himself. Today, uh, you can find a plaque that uh, commemorates the site of that church on the side of an Essen <laughs> restaurant um, across from a Hampton Inn. <laughs> But we're going to continue up Pearl, and we get to one of the most lovely spots in the city. Just look around, look to your left, Greg, and you'll see a canal, a lovely canal, the Hiragracht, or the Gentleman's Canal. Although, really, everybody just calls it the ditch. The ditch. Yep. Well, this is a very... Amsterdamian feature, right? Because it is a, it's an actual canal. Yes, built by Stuyvesant. He knew, you know, a thing or two about building canals. Uh, he had a creek that laid along here, deepened and made into a proper canal. So later on, you know, this will be filled in and made into just another boring old street mm -hmm. called Broad Street. Mm. Um, but we're, we're lucky because it's the 1660s, this is still a, a beautiful canal. And today's a Saturday. Today is the market day that you mentioned earlier in the show. Uh -huh. So look around. You see farmers and other people selling food all along the canal, even out of their boats right here. And what's interesting about the people who are selling here, it's a, it's a mix of people from all different areas um, around the region. And there's actually a lot of women selling 
products, selling produce. And women who are merchants, women who are very involved in the business affairs of New Amsterdam, which is a very notable feature of New Amsterdam and of New Netherland, and very different from the other colonies at this point in the 17th century. Women had totally different roles in Dutch society, and that translated into their role here in New Amsterdam. Women had more rights. They had more money because they had prenuptial agreements. Uh, They could do business. They could run business. They could be part of the government. The role of women was far more advanced here than in the English colonies. And by the way, if you walk up Broad Street today, if you look down onto the sidewalk, you can see the area of approximately of where the canal was. Like it's embedded in the sidewalk. It's very cool. This has worked up a thirst. So let's just walk a block north on Pearl Street here. Yes, and when we'll come across the City Tavern. Is that where you would like to go? Yes, let's, let's do it. Well, let's go for a drink. Unfortunately, by this point, the City Tavern has been changed into the Stadthuis, or the Town Hall. This building was constructed as the Stadtherberg, or the City Tavern, under Keefe's time. But by now, in the 1660s, it's functioning as City Hall. And actually, up on the second floor, uh, Stuyvesant and his council meet up there to make some very important decisions. When you're walking around today, in the 21st century, you can actually see the perimeter of this original structure. Uh, They have it in brick on the sidewalk. It is shockingly (laughs) small. (laughs) But I don't know how they fit in there. <laughs> Everyone was much smaller back then, I'm just assuming. You know what's interesting, by the way, is so there's a classic tavern that was once here. A tavern that you will not find in 1660s is Francis Tavern, no, which is yeah. right here, and a, another famous historical landmark. But it wouldn't be built for, you know, almost a century. Right. The, we are way pre-Francis. <laughs> but alas, we're going to keep moving north up to the wall. This 14-foot wall that you see before you, actually before you here at at the wall and and Pearl Street, is a gate that leads out to the the Burai and out out into the the farms beyond. But this 14-foot wooden wall is pretty new. I mean, it was constructed in 1653, and it runs from this East River to the North River, the Hudson, runs straight across the island. But just recently, in the 1660s, this wall was strengthened. It was reinforced, and they, they added cannons and lookouts and actually these two gates, one that's right here. A water gate here at Pearl and the waterfront. And then a second gate down at Broadway uh, to get in and out of the settlement. So we can just kind of saunter along the wall, Greg, heading back over to Broadway, and then really just kind of make our way south on Broadway. And as we stroll down Broadway, I mean, to our right, on the western side, there are, you know, gardens. There's the governor's garden that's Mm. on the land uh, west of Broadway. Then there are some other prominent homes, the homes of Balthazar Stuyvesant, Nicholas Stuyvesant, Henry Van Dyke. There are prominent families who have their homes here, but compared to the rest of New Amsterdam, it's sparsely developed over here. We have both done this walk recently. Mm-hmm. It's it's quite quick. So that was New Amsterdam in the 1660s, right? 1660. Let's say 1664, because that <laughs> okay. is that is in fact an important day. Because <laughs> that is in fact the final year of the existence of New Amsterdam. The final year, but wait, things are going well for for New Amsterdam. What happened? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. 
is the residents of New Amsterdam, they loved their city. They loved their livelihood. Things were going really well. In fact, many of the English settlements within New Netherland were thriving at this point. But as with so many details of the story, things are being influenced by the bigger picture. The international relations between these great powers. The settlements here are not insulated from these like larger political forces. By this time, by the early 1660s, the English were now really encroaching upon a weakening New Netherland. And given the fragility of a city like New Amsterdam, it didn't look like the Dutch could rely on just this, albeit thriving place, to, you know, to hold back the English in this huge territory. So in March of 1664, James Stuart, the Duke of York, became the proprietor of all the existing English colonies here in the New World. Could you remind us of which colonies England held? Well, the colonies north of here, including Connecticut and Massachusetts, for Mm -hmm. instance, and colonies south of here, including Virginia. What was here in the middle, of course, was New Netherland, this land holding by a weakening power. The Duke of York set his sights upon dismantling New Netherland by finally capturing New Amsterdam. So in the summer of 1664, that August, English ships sailed past Sandy Hook through the Narrows and docked along the shore of Long Island. They would land, I mean, where else? Near a settlement that would be very friendly to them, the settlement of Gravesend. They would then march up through Long Island to the village of Breuklin and then settle other ships along the coast of Staten Island. That is eerily parallel (laughs) to what would happen, what, 112 years later. Yeah, it's a good playbook if it ain't broke. (laughs) So, So Stuyvesant, he is looking out at the city that he's helped create and he must be enraged by this, because he sees the, the, the mighty force of the en- English fleet and knows that there is no way that he's going to get any help from the homeland, that there's going to be no way to fight them off. And he certainly doesn't have the soldiers or the military power to fight them back either. Nor, really, does he have the residents of the city. You know, things are operating very smoothly here in town for the most part, many believed that a peaceful handover would be far less disruptive, of course, and would even be better in the long run. Because keep in mind, a lot of them didn't really like Stuyvesant to begin with. And even some of them were English in the first place. Yeah, exactly. And it didn't help in their relations with Stuyvesant here that letters of surrender had been sent by both the English fleet and the English governor of Connecticut had been sent to Stuyvesant. And in both cases, he ripped them up in defiance. And these were letters that had been drafted that would make the transition very smooth yes. and advantageous for the residents of New Amsterdam. Right. And by the way, that also happened in 1776. <laughs> George Washington also ripped up a letter from the English. But of course, Stuyvesant's story turns out differently. Um, yeah. So he he rips up the letters of surrender and is defiant yeah. in the face of what? 
total destruction. <laughs> well, I mean, the English then are naturally sailing deeper into the harbor here with their guns aimed at New Amsterdam, aimed at the fort. By the way, the wall has certainly not held them back. <laughs> no, not the wall that was no of no use in this particular skirmish. Right, the conquerors would yeah. arrive by sea. Yeah. Stuyvesant angrily climbed the bastions of Fort Amsterdam and personally manned a gun himself, only to at the last minute be convinced to be pulled back. The following day, a petition that was signed by the prominent residents of New Amsterdam was given to Stuyvesant, basically beseeching him to give up. Finally, he did relent and invited representatives from the English fleet to his farm up in the Bowery, uh, where the Articles of Capitulation were eventually signed. And so, old New Amsterdam was now the city of New York. And this treaty was signed at his farm, at mm-hmm. Stuyvesant's farm. He must have been humiliated. Exactly. To know that so so very few of these people whose life that you thought you were making better, so few of them were really standing by you at this point. And then to have to go back to the Netherlands and explain the entire thing, this must have been like truly defeating on the deepest level for Peter Stuyvesant. Because he had to explain to the Dutch West India Company that had lost yet another colonial outpost. The States General threw the book at him and blamed him for the loss of New Amsterdam, which, you know, I think seems a little unfair. But let me ask you, Greg, don't you think Stuyvesant would have done the same thing? Don't you think he would have also blamed a leader who had lost his territory? What goes around comes around. In essence, he had lost his homeland. He had lost his home cause. But he did not lose his home. He went back to now New York, to the Bowery, where his family awaited him with open arms. He returned there in the spring of 1668. And Peter Stuyvesant would now remain there, but just as a mere estate and farm owner, here for the rest of his life. He would die just a few years later, in February of 1672. But his ancestors would become the backbone of New York culture. And the Stuyvesant land holdings would make his family incredibly wealthy. Today, Peter Stuyvesant is buried at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, the original site of the Stuyvesant Chapel. And today, every day and every night, thousands of people are out strolling the streets of the East Village that occupied the former Stuyvesant Farm. And thus ends the dramatic tale of the Dutch in Manhattan. Well, not really, actually, Tom. Oh, For just a few months after the death of Peter Stuyvesant in early 1672, a period in which it seems every European country was at war with one another, a Dutch fleet set out again to pillage the English and the French at sea. In the summer of 1673, this Dutch fleet entered New York Harbor, and it was New York, And then under the auspices of some intelligence that they had received from Dutch farmers who claimed now that everyone hated the English in New York and that they wanted to, like, see a return to the old New Amsterdam days, the Dutch managed to seize the city of New York. 
to reclaim their old territory, their old thumping ground. <laughs> yes, but they didn't rename it New Amsterdam. They renamed it New Orange, even going so far as to install a new form of Dutch government and even and taking land away from English estate owners. Okay. Oh, come on. <laughs> so New Orange is the New York. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But clearly, they didn't hold on to it for very long. What happened? No, no. It was for less than a year. It was not a tenable situation. Uh, It had been taken in a rare moment of English weakness. And the Dutch position was so incredibly weak overall that they had no chance of actually defending the city. Like, it would have just been taken back Anyway, <laughs> it's almost like they were just annoying or like pranking the British. Yeah, it was just like a little like, oh, yeah, well, we just want you to know that we could take it if we wanted it. But they returned it to the English in February of 1674. And thus now ends <laughs> yes. the story of Dutch authority over New York. That is true. Yes. And I would say that if the English had their way, they would pretty much have erased all of this history from memory entirely. You know, did not that you probably remember this, but like, did you study the Dutch period in New, of New York, of American history in high school? Do you remember this at all? N- no. I mean, we learned so much about the pilgrims and about the other settlements. Yeah. Well, yeah, the image of the Puritans, which, who embraced religious values, was seen as a defining American trait over the Dutch who embodied commerce and shock diversity <laughs> and multiculturalism those are not traits that were that were seen in a positive light traditionally throughout American history New York City itself of course is so fast paced that all physical traces of New Amsterdam were erased either on purpose or through a series of fires that swept through Manhattan Although altered names would continue to stick with us and to remind us of these Dutch periods, words such as Broadway and Bowery and Brooklyn, Harlem, Staten Island, not even all proper names, things like Donut, Donut. Cookie, even ironically the word Yankee is Dutch. (laughs) (laughs) But in the countryside, and for many, many, many decades afterwards, the Dutch culture remained alive in the region. And why is that? You'd think that the people would want to conform, you know, and fit in. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, a few weeks ago, I went up to Albany to the, right. to the New Netherland Institute and, and talked with Dr. Charles Gehring, and he's the director of the New Netherland Institute. He told me something very interesting I haven't really thought of, and that was during the English years, outside of the city... Families would retain that Dutch character and language, and they would retain it because of women. The men would come into the city and would need English to to work, whether it was to work at the markets or to work in town. The women stayed at home. There was no not quite as an urgency for them to switch to another language. And the women were often the educators of the family, passing those languages down to children, and thus passed down through generations in these regions just outside of New York City. The rural New York life then became infused with Dutch customs and philosophies. And and thus, the English, despite their best efforts, were never able to really cut the cord of the spirit of New Amsterdam. But certainly by like the, you know, the 19th century... 
things are becoming much more modern. These old-time traditions would disappear, wouldn't they? Well, they would sort of settle into local rural customs. Like there was there were certain Dutch traditions that would then now become sort of rural New York traditions. Oh. So by the mid-19th century, here you have New York, you know, which has been like a metropolis for many, many generations. And you begin to have a certain movement uh, of people pining for a simpler life, of an idealized country traditions, like the return to nature Mm -hmm. and all of that. Like Walden. Yeah, exactly. But with the idealizing of rural life, here in the New York area, they were also idealizing these Dutch traditions that were ingrained within that life. And we're now associated with regional dialects and customs. And a simpler way of life. Yeah. And it, I mean, essentially, being a New Yorker meant in a little way also, you know, being a little Dutch. But back to your point about how we never really learned about New Amsterdam in school. Yeah. You're saying that that was largely because the Dutch didn't win. They weren't the winners of this story. No. We, we learned the British side of that. So where are we even getting this information today? Yeah, I mean, the the key, because these aren't like stories that were passed down gracefully from the past. The key is the records of New Amsterdam and New Netherland themselves. The Dutch were fastidious in keeping records. The archives basically knocked about the state and even were sometimes out of state for for centuries. A great many records were unfortunately lost and destroyed. By the early 19th century, like we're talking like during the presidency of Thomas Jefferson, there was an actual attempt made to translate some of these damaged documents, but those translations were poor and even laughable. Mm. Unfortunately, so a lot of misinformation got passed down. Flash forward almost 150 years into the future, into the early 1970s. Governor Nelson Rockefeller funded an initiative to translate documents. And in 1974, the aforementioned Dr. Charles Goering began the New Netherland Project, which was a colossal task of attempting to read and translate these documents. Were they hard to translate? Were were they not in Dutch? They were, but it was in very old Dutch. The documents were severely damaged, and there was just really bad handwriting. Like, all of those things combined Mm. to make it a very, very difficult task, and they're still at it. It's an uphill battle for Dr. Gehring and his team of translators, librarians, and researchers to go through, you know, those thousands and thousands of old documents. The New Netherland Institute was officially formed in 1986, and the New Netherland Research Center is now open that you can visit at the New York State Library in Albany, New York. We've talked about some of the things that you could see. They have a huge library of books just related uh, to the Dutch New Amsterdam New Netherland period. And research materials that you should check out at newnetherlandinstitute.org. They also have a podcast called New Netherlands Preaches, which is Dutch for chat. And uh, Russell Shorto, who wrote The Island at the Center of the World, is the host of some of those shows. So this is a... Which is, is by the way, another great book to read uh, if you'd like to read much more in greater detail about New Netherland, New Amsterdam, and of course, Peter Stuyvesant. You can also visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for 
images, illustrations of Peter Stuyvesant, places that you can visit in the city, and a couple good maps to help you on your walking tour. We'd like to send a big thank you to our patrons who have joined us at patreon.com slash Boys. Patrons, as you know, Greg and I just started our own spin-off show called Bowery Boys Movie Club. And the first episode is now available just for patrons. Tom and I discussing the 1976 thriller Taxi Driver. Every month we'll have another New York-centric film to watch together and then discuss on the show. So join us on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys to, well, join the movie club. Thanks for spending two shows with us in the streets of New Amsterdam. It's been fun. It has been. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Bye.